Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that tries to spread the word about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including confirmation that newer cars are much safer than older ones. I attended a session with Toyota's chief designers from California, heard about the corporate edict that Toyota had to stop making boring cars and got to have a play with a clay model. They are skilled in design, but the exercise clearly showed that I am not. We road test the cute Suzuki Ignis SUV, a four-wheel drive it is not, and Brian Smith and I take a cheerful look at some unusual stories of the day, including seeking to revive an ancient transport network in the UK. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au and you can listen to a podcast of the whole program on our website at drivenmedia.com.au or on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Recently at Melbourne Airport, a Tesla Model X towed a Boeing 7879 series Dreamliner down a taxiway. The Tesla pulled the Qantas jet about 300 metres. This was, according to Qantas, the first time in history an electric passenger vehicle has towed a passenger plane, though electric vehicles do commonly tow other aircraft. The car actually received a Guinness World Record for the heaviest tow by an electric production passenger vehicle. The Tesla is the electric passenger vehicle with the highest towing capacity currently on the market, so it's not surprising that it was able to tow such a heavy load, but still very impressive as publicity stunts go. In the long term, widespread use of electric vehicles could help airlines cut down on their emissions on the runway. In New Zealand, the Ministry of Transport is considering introducing point-to-point cameras which calculate an average speed of a vehicle over a certain distance. But a Kiwi road safety advocate says that it is trucks and middle-aged men on motorbikes that are causing New Zealand's road toll to spike, not speedsters. Clive Matthew Wilson said the idiots who cause most fatal accidents tend to ignore speed limits anyway. The Associate Transport Minister said the new cameras were just one of a raft of new measures to help combat the ever-increasing road toll, after they proved successful in Australia, the UK and Europe. Matthew Wilson said speed cameras alienated ordinary motorists without affecting the behaviour of the tiny minority who cause most fatal accidents. He said the government's own statistics showed that speed alone was a factor in just 15% of fatal crashes. It probably doesn't come as much of a surprise, but the US National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has released data that shows that newer vehicles tend to be inherently safer than older ones. Specifically, the administration determined that a higher proportion of passengers in more dated vehicles are killed in crashes than are those riding in recently minted models. 
the difference in fatality rates between vehicles built prior to 1984 is more than double that recorded for models sold between 2013 and 2017. Billionaire and Tesla founder Elon Musk says he's almost completed a tunnel under a Los Angeles suburb to test a novel transportation system that would scoot commuters underground on electric sleds called skates. Musk tweeted that, pending regulatory approvals, free rides will be offered to the public in a few months. Last year, the Hawthorne City Council in LA approved an approximately two-mile test tunnel from Musk's SpaceX rocket plant to a point east of Los Angeles International Airport. Musk has described a system in which vehicles would descend via elevators into tunnels and move on electrically powered platforms called skates. He envisions multiple levels of tunnels to escape congestion that plagues surface traffic systems. Uber recently announced that their self-driving car tests will restart in a few months. Uber had suspended all self-driving tests following a fatal crash in Arizona in March. The US National Traffic Safety Board is conducting an investigation into the crash and its report should be available soon. Uber has also undertaken an internal safety review following the incident. In the weeks following the fatality, Arizona's governor halted Uber's ability to test self-driving cars in the state. Uber also decided against renewing its self-driving license in California, leaving Pittsburgh as the only city where it can still test self-driving cars. From July next year, all new and electric hybrid models seeking approval in Europe will have to emit a noise when travelling at low speeds. Existing vehicles are expected gradually to be retrofitted with devices. Research shows electric cars are about 40% more likely to hit a pedestrian than a conventional vehicle. One study suggests that 93% of blind and partially sighted people have had problems with them. In Japan, there was a national outcry when a guide dog and its owner were killed by a reversing electric car whose driver had used a pause control to deactivate its sound emitter. The new standards, which in Europe will be introduced via an EU directive, will require activation by default when the vehicle is on. About 140,000 electric vehicles are now registered in Britain compared with just 3,500 in 2013. By 2030, the national grid predicts there could be as many as 9 million electric vehicles on Britain's roads. And that has been the news. I have always thought that Toyota car design was like a pair of sensible shoes. They were functional and long-lasting, but they were definitely not stylish, let alone elegant. Apparently, Toyota agrees. They now have a corporate edict to stop building boring cars. Recently, Kevin Hunter, the president of Calty, which is part of a global design network that contributes design concepts for Toyota and Lexus vehicles, was in Australia along with his chief designer, William Chagoski. Calty was established in 1973, making Toyota one of the first to establish a design centre in California, which is widely known for its trend-setting lifestyle culture. I asked Kevin, when did Toyota come to the realisation that their cars were boring? 
happened when our president took over Akio Toyota and I think he came in and just looked at the situation and said, hey, if we're going to be competitive into the future, we have to get out of building these bland cars. So um, that's pretty much what he said. He came out and just said, there's no more boring cars at Toyota. And we loved it as designers. We, we want to create exciting cars. So now we, we've basically, we've been taken off our leash and we can create exciting cars. And uh, that's a big thrill for us. Akio Toyota became president of Toyota in 2009. He is the great-grandson of the father of the Japanese Industrial Revolution, as well as being both the grandson of the founder of Toyota Motors and the maternal grandson to the founder of the Takashimaya Department Store Corporation. Being boring was not a conscious decision, but a consequence of Toyota's management style and appealing to a wide market, as Kevin says. Some of the things that factored in us missing the mark on the emotional point of view is um, we're a pretty consensus-driven organization and uh, a lot of opinions get factored in and maybe there were too many opinions coming into the mix. So I think there's been a lot of streamlining in the process that we go through so we can create more pure, bold statements of design. And um, I think another reason is too, we're trying to satisfy everybody uh, with our designs. And when we try to do that, our designs tend to move to the middle they get more boring and bland. So we're, we're okay with polarization now as a design statement. And I think especially in our front ends, we're creating a lot more bold, dynamic uh, looking front ends. And there's some love out there and then some, some people that aren't all that thrilled with them, but we're okay. We, we wanna create memorable design that we think is moving into the future and just get out of this uh, boring vanilla uh, direction that we've had in the past in some of our cars. Everyone has an opinion of the looks of a car, and you often hear expressions such as, I could do better. I absolutely could not do better. I can tell you what and why I like or don't like about the finished car design, but I could not design a better result. Now, Toyota gave us the opportunity to try our hand at drawing new car designs, with the experts looking on, and then have a go at clay modelling on a small scale. Is there any point in letting me near blank paper or a clay model? There is, but the benefit was all mine. While dabbling around with pen and paper and clay, they recorded the following comments. When I was very young, my father bought me an Airfix kit of a Mini Cooper, and I put it together and I'm not good with my hands, and the thing lent to the side badly. So I always thought of it as cornering. That's how I accounted for it. Part of the problem was there wasn't a lot of resources to keep trying it again. And drawing cars here, I'm terrible, it's very simplistic. But the mere fact of being able to try something, even if it fails miserably, but at least you start to think in more detail than you had before. So I was drawing a car and I thought, the back of an old Jaguar. So I tried drawing that. It looked terrible, but it made me think more. And the nice thing was then to go and have another attempt at it. Again, it's that... A notion that you need 10,000 hours in order to get better at it. I'll never be really good, but I've learnt a lot more by merely trying a few times and realising what it's not and realising that when I tried one thing, it looked a bit different than I thought, and so I get to modify it. Even the designer said, draw the wheels, that's fine. 
but then he just added little bits to make not a full wheel uh, like a mag wheel but something that just emphasizes a little bit the general shape of the thing and so I'm, I'm not good I tend to draw the outside without being able to draw the other now Alan Alan's drawn a big thing here and it's got this you can see much more detail to it mine would be just the outside edge now I might get a bit better at it not good but I might get better if I keep trying and with this the clay model I tended to take it in great slabs whereas I was shown to use a tool to simply start taking it and, and fashioning an approach to it and taking a bit out so that I make the back. I, I, suddenly I'm looking in much more detail. I'm not looking well. My colleague just said whistling and that's a great word. I'm not doing it well but I'm learning more about how shaping it gently, try a little bit and have a feel to it rather than having to perfect it immediately. If I look at much of my upbringing it has been far too much of trying to be absolutely right to start with design is taking time and trying and trying and trying again i'm loving this it's not great but the outcome but i will never look at a car design the same way ever again you might not agree with the end product of toyota's new approach to car design but you cannot deny that the results will not be boring. You're listening to Overdrive. The expression SUV can mean many things these days, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Well, not ridiculous, but certainly very different. SUV, sports utility vehicle, is a nomenclature that has been applied to a wide range of automobiles, down to the smallest ones, such as the road test this week, the Suzuki Ignis. When I say all the way down, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but more in terms of size and price. Mind you, Suzuki pioneered small four-wheel drives starting back in April 1970 with the LJ10. They were one tough little beast. But it must be said that the Ingus is well removed from the off-road vehicles of the past. It is built to be a city car. If you want a bit more off-road capability, Suzuki has the Vitara. Having said that, Suzuki devotees are rather precious. I did a review a while back on the new Hyundai Kona little SUV. I said that the Kona had striking modern styling, while some of its competitors, like the Ignis, was just rather cute. An irate reader was really upset that I should dare to suggest the Ignis was anything but tough. It is not and it's not meant to be. Some details of the Suzuki Ignis are that it has a 1.2-litre four-cylinder engine. You have to look into the fine print of the brochure to find out it delivers 66 kilowatts and 120 newton metres of torque. It's no rocket. You can get a five-speed manual in the base GL model or a CVT in both the GL or the GLX. Most will be sold in the up-spec version. We are talking two-wheel drive only. It has to work hard if you try to find its upper limits of performance, and it gets a bit noisy. It weighs about half of the old-style Commodore at 820 or 865 kilograms, depending on the gearbox. The fuel consumption figures are more to the point. 
With the manual, it is rated at 4.6 litres per 100 and the CVT at 4.9 litres per 100. It's easy to drive and it's easy to park. The interior is elementary, including a mechanical dial for the cabin temperature setting in the base model, but it doesn't look particularly dated. Simple, but effective. The rear seat room is a revelation. With the front seats in about the middle of their adjustment, in the back I had enough legroom and good support under the thighs, but the roof line comes down the side a bit too much into the usual door area and you can hit your head getting in. Once you're in, the actual roof line is quite high, but you find yourself shifting towards the centre of the car to clear the side bit. The rear boot space is helped by being deep, but is still only 270 litres. You can fold the rear seats down to make more room. The privacy tray at the back is a bit cheap and tacky. The list of features is pretty good. With the manual GL starting at $16,000 plus on roads, you get cruise control, sat-nav, reversing camera, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, and six airbags. Move up to the top of the range GLX at $20,000 plus on roads, and you get an additional 16-inch alloy wheels, sliding and reclining rear seats, daytime running lights, and a keyless push start, and some other things. And there is six colour options, including two bright, funky ones. The small SUV class is growing in the number of options and in total sales. In the last few years, there's been 30 different vehicles for sale, but six of them have dropped out, and another six or seven are really on the edge of extinction. The Ignis sales figure so far this year put it in 12th place, well behind things like the Mitsubishi ASX, the Mazda CX-3, the Subaru XV, the Honda HR-V, the Nissan Qashqai, and in, what's that, 6th and 7th position, the Hyundai Kona and the Toyota CHR, two fairly recent entries into this category, aren't doing quite as well as they might. The Suzuki four-wheel drive started, as I say, back in April 1970 with a 360cc two-stroke engine. It developed 18 kilowatts. It had a canvas canopy, which included canvas doors, and by placing the spare tyre inside the vehicle, it was under three metres in length. It was made small for a reason. It was classified in Japan as a K-car. That's spelled K-E-I. This gave it more favourable government taxes and insurance, and in rural areas you didn't have to certify that you had an adequate parking space for the vehicle. But in summary of the new Ignis, it has retro styling with progressive design, so Suzuki says. I don't know what that means. To me, it looks cute. It's easy to live with, it's no rocket, but it is very economical to run. It has good features for the price, although none of the latest electronic safety features like automatic emergency braking. Its comfort level is well above the canvas doors of its distant predecessor. I think some of its nearest competitors are actually the small sedans, such as the Kia Picanto. It's really a small but tall sedan that is fit for purpose. This is Overdrive across Australia.
And here we are at the end of the program, and joining us once again is our good friend Brian Smith. Go, Brian. G'day, David. In the UK, they have 3,000 kilometres of canals, which were put in mainly around the Industrial Revolution, but only 5% are now being used to transport goods. Certainly a lot are being used for recreation. It's a quiet and lovely. Uh, there's even a community there as well. But might not this become an opportunity for delivering freight? We often overlook freight, don't we, Brian, in transport planning? Indeed, David. And, and this, uh, uh, I mean, well, certainly some major motorway projects in New South Wales are being promoted on the basis of freight. But of course, these inland canals were all about moving freight. So they would have a towpath and these vessels would be pulled by horses that walked along the towpath alongside. So it's interesting, there's a lot of tourism coming back to the canals and and the towpaths and their gradients are very suitable for riding bikes around as well. But it'd be interesting to see these used more often, David, for for carrying freight. Venice is uh, not canals in one sense, but maybe in another. All those places around the Gold Coast have got a whole pile (laughs) of canals there. So we could turn the housing there into industrial states, or perhaps that might not go down well. (laughs) The other thing, perhaps, Brian, are you suggesting here we should flood our freeways? That's a lovely idea. I think uh, get some koi carp in there and, um, you know, a few... Yeah, some lovely flowers and uh, water lilies. One of the great problems of the canal is that uh, ships, boats, what do they call them? I don't know. Only go at about eight kilometres an hour, eight miles an hour. But if you had autonomous boats on there, slowness doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You're right, David. It's um, fairly low friction sort of way to do things. And you can, mm. you know, you don't need to be worried too much about uh, aerodynamics. Uh, certainly if you could operate them independently that's a pretty cool idea two million tons of stuff arrived at the building of the london olympic games by canal not sure how well we go here in australia a dry continent um you know i I guess alan jones has always wanted to turn the rivers inland or something actually Hmm. maybe there's opportunities but i think we'd be more likely to have you'd need sort of four-wheel drives for some of our rivers (laughs) the the murray (laughs) a a dust bowl (laughs) i think that might be right thanks barnaby Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> we'll have to buy the water off Barnaby's mates to, to be able to make the rivers navigable. We could perhaps use them for the commute. I know someone who actually kayaks across Sydney Harbour to get oh, to his job. What a fantastic idea. Yeah, but it might be a bit like riding, as you said last week, about the riding on Harley Davidson's. <laughs> Swallowed hmm. up by a ferry. Brian, a story of vandals. David, I don't know if you recall the wonderful movie Cool Hand Luke. Oh, yes. uh, Which starts with the eponymous Luke pulling the heads off parking meters as he's walking along the street drunk and he's got a a big spanner and he's just uh, winding the heads off parking meters and that's what in jail. Well, in uh, Washington, D.C., sorry, St. John's, Newfoundland, a very strange situation is occurring where people are sawing the tops of these parking meters off. They're, They're cutting the heads off parking meters. So it's a bit of an epidemic of parking meter destruction. Something like most of the city's 1,167 parking machines have been uh, have been destroyed at a cost to replace of something like 474 US dollars. Strangely, people are perhaps not doing it for the money because uh, usually each of the parking meters only contains about $15 a day. So it's, I think it's a hate crime, is it, David? Ah, see, the heading, I totally with you here, Brian. The heading says vandals have beheaded over a 1,000 parking metres. It's got almost a jihadist sort of approach, oh, doesn't it? Really. 
yeah. you know, that everything we do now, everyone is outraged about, and we judge it as though it were a front to a 10,000-year-old you know, religion or whatever. It's become this incredibly passionate sort of thing. And so, just as I say, the heading is beheading the, the parking meters. It is a, a sense of outrage and religious religiosity rather than anything. Because, as you say, they don't have money in them much now. They're all taken by credit cards. Well, in fact, it's, it's, uh, some of the city is, is, is using this opportunity to reintroduce or to introduce cashless systems so that the meters themselves become redundant. So whoever is, uh, is, I guess, destroying these in the hope that it will prevent the city from charging for parking um, has probably just hastened a more efficient way of uh, parking by uh, app. So uh, I suspect that they may not have the effect they think they're having. Uh, the other thing I just noticed about that is well, surely it makes a lot of noise. You would think so. I've seen some pictures that look like they've been chainsawed in half. It's amazing. The, the, the city talks about you know, possibly people using baseball bats and the like, but what I saw looks like they've been done by a chainsaw. Baseball bats? amount of noise. Yeah. That would jar your hands, wouldn't it? But anyway, yes. let's move on to a burglar by the name of George Mee. He and a, a colleague tried to rob a house. A colleague had a knife. The neighbours stepped in and had a discussion with him. You understand what I mean by a discussion? <laughs> discussion. But they photographed him and then they left. But the other thing was that it was quite obvious what he was driving. He had a blue VW as a getaway vehicle, but it had a personalised number plate. And this has made what the story is all about, how dumb he was. But, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm struggling here, Brian. George Mee, his number plate was GM05MEE. So I understand the MEE. I'm, I'm missing here. GM05. 05 is often S, Jamos. Jamos. I don't get it. I don't get how personalised it is. So clearly, not only is he not smart by turning up with personalised <laughs> number plates, but he's got a stupid one anyway. Maybe it's his middle name. Maybe it's like um, George. Michael. Moz, Moz, and then his nickname's Mozzie or something like this, Moz. Because five is often an S. Yes. It, so it's me almost. I mean, he could have had a, a personalised number plate that says something like, look at me. Yes, he perhaps wasn't smart enough to think of that one. It's M-double-E, um, of course, but uh, yeah, look at me. Not only that, but it, it was people who recognised him, neighbours. So so he wasn't just um, you know <laughs> being caught by the personalised plate, but it was people who knew him. So, <laughs> oh, hi, George. How are yeah. you? What can I do? <laughs> yes. He's been ordered to undertake a course in bettering his thinking skills after admitting the burglary. What, what does that mean? That he plans a better robbery? <laughs> That's true. They, the judge even said, have you got rid of the number plate now? So he was kind of hinting, I think, yes. that uh, if he wanted to be more successful. Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, David. That's Brian Smith, and we were talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>